Hello, and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hey, everybody. Hi, welcome back. I just have one thing to tell you, Luke. Girls, we run this very who, nice. run, who run the world? Get into formation, Katie Mead. Yeah. You you know who run the world. Just kidding. Women don't run the world. If women ran the world, we wouldn't have had World War One, which is what I'm talking <laughs> about today. <laughs> it's Women's History Month. Hey oh. Yeah. So I thought I would start. Uh, the month and our return from our little hiatus by uh, talking about the role that some very interesting women played during World War One, and sort of go into just just how bad World War One was for everyone involved. <laughs> so often forgotten. So that's actually the first thing I was going to talk about with you, Lou. I think it's really unfortunate that World War One is just not taught very well here in America. I can't compare it to how well or not well it's taught in Europe, but certainly here it's disgraceful. Don't yeah. you agree? In the United Kingdom, they definitely have a much better grasp on it. The commemorative culture of mm. World War One is so strong. Yeah. And I would love to explore that. You know, I, th I think a lot of it has to do with like the Royal family and definitely. the Remembrance Day and the Cenotaph and all of those things or the Cenotaph as they sometimes call it. But yeah, I was just talking about this with a colleague recently. World War One gets sucked into this vortex with World War Two. You know. And in America, World War Two is such a powerful narrative because Yes. We become the global superpower. The, it leads to the Cold War, nuclear, you know, mutually assured destruction. We're very much a paradigm. Our world today is a paradigm of, of the Second World War. And we also, you know, obviously we lose some civilians in the sinking of the Lusitania, but World War II, we are attacked on our soil. So it's very different. And we're such late late players in the World War One game. We try to stay out of that shit as long as possible. <laughs> Thank you, Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, as anybody could tell you, the failures of the securing the peace of World War One is what leads to World War Two. So, and I think in Europe, it's more acutely felt because World War One, like you're saying, decimated Europe. It did. You know, the mustard gas, you know, all the stuff happening in the woods in France. Like oh, that we're getting into it, babe. <laughs> Yeah, that was all happening there. Yeah, and you know, I mean, our even our death totals don't match like at all, even slightly. And and World War One, our death toll is what do I have? I have like a hundred and twenty thousand ish versus World War Two, which is like four hundred and twenty thousand. Mm and -hmm. the trauma of Pearl Harbor. I mean, I think from from what I looked up, we hadn't really been attacked on our own soil to that extent by a foreign entity, I mean, aside from the border wars with Mexico, really since, you know, ages and ages, it had been a long time. So it was quite, quite a shock to the system. So yeah, World War One kind of gets, it's the forgotten child for sure. And I think as a result, people really struggle to understand in this country, at least why the war even happened at all, why it started. World War II is very, very clear. <laughs> we all understand what the problem is, why Germany's mad, <laughs> and it's because of World War I. But then it's like, okay, so then what happened with World War I? And I think most Americans, if you ask them, they'd either be like, oh, I don't know, or, oh, because they killed that Franz Ferdinand guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Franz Ferdinand before he was the name of a band, he a was band. an archduke. Yeah, he was an archduke for a little <laughs> and, while. And um yeah, the whole we were talking about the crown heads of Europe and this international yes. club of monarchs and the idea that the this would be an international alliance system of of royal relation yes. that would keep peace and it completely broke down. Well, the like Kaiser, any family Sometimes. The Kaiser, you son of a bitch, you ruined it for everybody. And Fucking a lot really? of heads rolled, you know? I mean, yeah. And Nikki and the and the, and the Bolsheviks, Nikki you know, it's all happening too. at the same time. I know it is a terrifying couple of years for the for the world. It's 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 rough. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm gonna just very quickly for all of you Americans who never really took the time to actually learn about this really you quickly. Boobies, come on, crack a book. <laughs> it's okay. I'm here for all you lazy lazy bitches. So really quick. Just the rundown. So we've mentioned, as and Luke just mentioned now, we've talked about several very powerful empires that exist in this time, like the Romanovs. 
uh, Kaiser Wilhelm or Wilhelm the <laughs> second King George, of course, who also all look alike because they're related. Yeah. Um, they are very close, really, but yet they all have this same common thing of they're imperialists, they're emperors, really, at the end of the day. And they're trying to stretch their reach far and wide across Europe, Asia, Africa, the Pacific, anywhere and everywhere, because this is how you build your nation's wealth. Mm -hmm. More places, more ports, more goods, more money, more power. And there are also all these alliances that exist. So if you're going to go after my buddy, I'm going to back my buddy. And then it's like, oh, yeah, well, if you go after his buddy, then I'm going after his buddy and and on and on you go. So the war didn't happen because of Franz Ferdinand's assassination. Uh, it was sort of the last straw and it gave permission for Austria-Hungary to finally declare war on Serbia, which it had been longing to do. So, And Austria-Hungary is a disaster area. We do not have time to go into how many different populations of people who were living there and how many- The geopolitics. Them, oh yeah. my God, how mm -hmm. many of them hated each other and the racism and, oh my God, Austria-Hungary is a mess. And yet Germany backs them because they are allied, they're buddies. Germany says, yeah, we'll- we're going to declare war too. And Russia says, well, we have to back the Serbs. And so France has France backs Russia and eventually England and then eventually the US and all these mm -hmm. different powers throughout the globe pick a side. And by and large, people do end up with the allied forces. But yeah, it's a mess. And like I said, we don't really get involved until we're directly attacked by the Lusitania. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we know, of course, the central powers ultimately lose and they are punished severely via the Treaty of Versailles, which is what helps leads to fascism, Hitler, blah, 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 World War II. And uh, yeah, so that's it. That's all you really need to know. It's really not that hard. This is great. This is better than Mel Brooks. This is <laughs> so there you go, kids. Context. So World War One for people who do know about it or have learned about it, it's often thought of as a war of numbers. And it's reduced to numbers because of how insanely high the numbers are. And it's just a way to quantify horrendous loss. There are anywhere, it's they and it again, because of the war and because of the time period, it is a little bit hard to know exactly how many people died, but it's estimated anywhere from like 15 to 20 some odd million people die in this war. And that includes uh, civilians as well as soldiers. But it's, yeah, it's it's horrendous. The allied powers lose probably closer to 6 million soldiers. Central powers lose closer to 4 million soldiers. These numbers are, you know, when they're just rolling off my tongue, they don't have the same power as when we hear about the horrible personal accounts and stories of World War One, And so that's why I wanted to spend time today to focus on the human experience of those who faced combat and really highlight and give some major props to women who certainly could have had a big role had they been permitted to do so, but regardless, still played a very important role. So here we go. <laughs> All the ladies. Let's talk a little bit about their their roles during the war. <laughs> when the war begins in 1914, it is not what we would call a great time in terms of women's liberation <laughs> internationally. No, it's not. We are years from suffrage in many of the Western world. Yes. <laughs> Still a few short years. And what's crazy, though, is that suffrage movements were well underway. They'd already been fighting the fight for a long time. Lots of women are Decades. sitting Decades. rotten in jails at this point for, for mm -hmm. being suffragists. And there's already this like international coalition of suffragists because it's they've really started trying to make this like this is not just a United States problem, a Europe problem. This is like we all are have to make some change here. But even despite all of the forward momentum, or at least, you know, feminist movement that had been transpiring, they still don't really have any rights. And they certainly are not allowed to serve in the military. But many women want to fight mm. and want to find a way to fight if they're not allowed to actually be in the military. And they want to support their country. They want to support their boys and the men who are fighting. And what also becomes interesting is many women also recognize that this is an opportunity to show men what they're made of. You yeah. think we can't do X, Y, and Z? Fucking watch us. So 
from the beginning, what's really funny is, uh, <laughs> of course, right off the bat, it's like, what you need to do more than anything else is take care of the home. You see these newspapers that say the best way you can help is just stay pretty, cheer on your boys, write letters, have your babies while they're gone, grow your own gardens, you know, just shelter in place. Shelter, yeah. Keep that figure. <laughs> duck, keep and, the hearth. duck and cover when needed. Otherwise, you know, just keep. Don't talk to the milkman. Okay, don't you fucking dare. Mm. <laughs> Um, and and many even got jobs as like housekeepers and doing other like traditional women's roles, but domestic roles. Yeah, yeah, but we see a big shift happen as the war gets intense, and this sort of real like arms race is happening in the war because each side seems to be advancing with a new weapon every fucking day, and so they're trying to keep up with each other. Yet at the same time. There's no one to work in manufacturing. There's no one around. All the men are gone. So this is like women being like, oh, hey, hey, real quick. I'm here. <laughs> so women roll into manufacturing and agricultural roles, leadership roles in these places for the first time ever. And they're farmers. They're helping to build railroads, anything and everything that you could imagine. And of course, again, because there's such a need for arms more than ever, factory workers, I mean, the populations explode. And yeah, so these women are beyond important at home. And what's really cool in the United States is that even African-American women were welcome in the workforce. That's how badly it was needed. Right. Racism is put aside when... The military industrial complex comes across. <laughs> exactly. When it's total war, we totally need you. <laughs> <clears throat> mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So um, there's actually a really good quote by Alice Dunbar Nelson, who's an American poet and civil rights activist of the time. And she says of black women during the war, the women worked as ammunition testers, switchboard operators, stock takers. They went into every kind of factory devoted to the production of war materials, from the most dangerous posts in munition plants to the delicate sewing in airplane factories. They did it all. And it's hard to fathom, not just as a woman, but as a black woman wanting to help a country that does nothing but try to bring you down. Like, it says a lot about the character of any of the women who were willing to participate, you know? So, mm -hmm. I, you know, it, that just starting with that, it's like, I would have been like, fuck you. <laughs> but that's just me. I'm petty. <laughs> Let's talk about those munition plants. You want to talk morbid? Holy shit. <laughs> that was scary work. Really scary work. The women who worked there were known as munitionettes. I love which that. Which sounds so cute. It's not cute. They were exposed to toxic gases, no asbestos, of course, and everybody's favorite TNT. <laughs> you you came with a whole sound card. Today. I did. I really did. I've been working on this soundtrack for the last three weeks. Uh, so what's interesting about TNT is when you're working directly with it, the way that these women were, it leads to this bizarre yellowing of the hands and. Luke's making a ew face. Ew. <laughs> and that's in the most minor version of it, which is what most yeah. people suffer from. But this could then turn into actual illness. Maybe you're having some nausea or vomiting. Uh, and in the worst case, you're getting jaundice and you die. And that was pretty Ugh. rare. But it's still, you're getting poisoning essentially from this. Mm -hmm. The factories, of course, are poorly ventilated. The work is so physically demanding. It is deafeningly loud and this is of course Terrible. all pre-labor rights so they're working under yeah it's deregulated you're handling phosphorus yeah, and other fucking evil things in the periodic table there's nothing like yeah it's not like the government just because they've taken over all of this it's not like they're like and don't worry we're gonna take care of you no they're keeping it as shitty as it ever was <laughs> yeah i can't imagine the war that brought us mustard gas uh you know brought us like clean making yeah. of those implements of war oh imagine if it had actually been like wow we finally get what's going on here you guys are right it's bad <laughs> and gloves and wash your hands and shields and lead aprons and no 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 just just breathe it in esther just deal with it <laughs> Get a ciggy. You'll be fine. You're an initiate. No, you get a free cigarette every hour. 
<laughs> because Luke, you brought up a great point. Uh, there were explosions. <laughs> no. Because, so this is what's interesting. The women, of course, got injured at work all the time at the factories. Like I mentioned, they, they could get... Because they were so delicate and inferior. Well, obviously, yeah. Men <laughs> never got horrible injuries from factory work. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is, aside from like oral accounts from co-workers talking about friends getting seriously injured or dying, you don't see much of that reported in the news at the time because they were... Stifling those stories for the sake of morale. Okay. Mm. But one thing you can't hide is a motherfucking explosion. <laughs> and they <laughs> happened. And I came across a really bad one. It was in Silvertown in London's East End, where 73 people were killed and 400 were injured. Whoa. Bad. Really bad. Yeah. To make weapons. <laughs> the worst part we're <laughs> uh, so we're so stupid uh anyway oh by the way those women who were working with the tnt that got all yellow they were sometimes called canary girls or those girls with the yellow hair <laughs> oh my god yeah it's just a thing a tweety bird oh that's adorable i love that luke so then we have women who want to actually be super brave and contribute more directly to being on the front lines. So we know for a long time now, when women actually wanted to be involved in war, they were often there as nurses. And the same goes for World War I. There's many involved with the Red Cross. They're acting as nurses, doctors, ambulance drivers, translators, mm. which is super helpful, obviously. And yeah, in some limited cases, some actually saw action on the battlefield, especially in Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Serbia, where women were, to some extent, allowed to serve. I'm about to introduce you to one of my favorite people I've ever learned about. A real badass that I came across in my research was Maria Bokareva. I think that's how you say her name. She was a Russian, and she mm. founded the <laughs> Russian army's, get ready, Women's Battalion of Death. <laughs> <laughs> hot right that's hot that's like a yeah that's a hot band band name it's trope but oh yeah. i like it though the battalion of death she was the first woman to ever lead a, a russian military unit and eventually she was granted permission directly from tsar nicholas himself to serve in the imperial russian army in 1914 no way. isn't that wild and Amazing. of course she's mocked I'm sure mm -hmm. she's threatened and harassed endlessly, but she didn't care. She stuck with it. She she wanted this military career and was incredibly successful and decorated as both a soldier and eventually a commander. She, I think she rose as high as lieutenant. She did pretty well. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, I think of like comrade, I think of like enemy at the gates, like in the Soviet era, there seems to be some kind of leveling of the playing field with men and women, or at least well, women that's are what communism does. Yeah. Communism right? is supposed to be. And that's why like there's equal. Exactly. That's why there's this weird time, like wartime. We throw all of our social mores out the window. Yeah. And now it's okay to, for everyone to be equals in this fight, sort of, kind of, I still don't want to be next to a black guy. <laughs> I'm working yeah. here. <laughs> wow. But this is still kind of an outlier. Like, She's such you know, an outlier. Yeah. And wait, <laughs> this is the best part of this story. <laughs> so the reason why this all-female battalion exists and why I love it, they were put out there to shame Russian soldiers into fighting. Because <laughs> they were starting oh. to be like, fuck this. As we know from our Russia episodes, people are fucking over it when it comes to the czar and they're like why are we all out here dying for this this is stupid they're afraid i mean we we're going to get into the weaponry a little bit here um but it's terrifying what the germans have brought to this war and so these women roll up and they're like hey guys listen up if me and my bitches can put on our big boy pants and do the thing so can you so stop your crying and your borscht <laughs> and let's go. <laughs> I've had it. The great motivator. I know. Of course it's wrong and it's backwards. Shame, but... shame, shame, shame. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's shame. the next one in the, in the World War I playlist. 
<laughs> oh, so anyway. Uh, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. You. So the battalion did see action. They went to the Russian front and they were part of the horrendous failure known as the uh, Kerensky Offensive of 1917. <laughs> long forgotten. Long, obviously. long forgotten. Yeah, no, it was a big Oops. embarrassment for Russia. Uh, colossal failure. But still, she survived the war. And, you know, got out of there quickly because she knew yeah. things were getting real bad real fast. Uh, I think she even had like a meeting with Woodrow Wilson. Uh, she made it to the U.S. and talked to him be like, you have to help. Things are so bad there and like brought him to tears, apparently. Uh, and sadly, she uh, she would be taken by the Bolsheviks when she returned home and she was executed in 1920. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, she she had a tie to the czar. So fuck her. Right. That's how they rolled. Mm, um, mm. So, yeah. So that's like you're saying a pretty unique story. But on the front, you were far more likely to see women doing medical work. And one thing that's super cool, often women who were drivers in the Red Cross Motor Service and all of these ambulance groups that were involved, they had to use their own cars. <laughs> and it's like, that is fucked like up. Uh, am I getting reimbursed for the mileage or what are we? <laughs> this is a lease. I can't. I have my 1911 Peugeot. Um... <laughs> I can't bring this up. This is a lease. I just. <laughs> oh my God. So. So Wild. One of the most famous ambulance drivers would have been the one and only Madame Marie Curie, who, mm. of course, is most famous for her and her husband's work on radiation. She invents the mobile X-ray unit. Wow. Yes. And there are these little ambulances that have X-ray machinery in them, and they're called little Curies, which is so cute. <laughs> and they're operated almost entirely by women. So it's women wow. like explaining to doctors how to use this equipment, helping them use it and helping them read the x-rays and everything. Because some of them probably had never used an x-ray machine before. Right. So, yeah, it's amazing. And what an incredible tool to have in the field when you're having endless bullet wounds and broken bones and things that like you're trying to work on patients quickly. So that's going to help things go 10 times faster. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. So she was helping train the doctors. She was helping train these girls. And unfortunately, what she didn't know and what these other women didn't know at the time was this constant exposure to radiation obviously was going to lead to their awful health problems and her more likely than not her death. So yeah, she really did give her life in the service of others, even during this war and beyond. So another, an incredible hero of the war, ladies. So yeah, that's just some of the women's roles. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And they did far more than I could possibly cover in this one single episode. Um, and, I'm, and I wish I was doing them more justice, but I just wanted it to, to, be, to be known. They matter. They're important. And attention must be paid. But I do want to pause on the ladies. Attention must be exactly. paid. I do want to pause on the ladies for a moment to talk a little bit about what the boys were going through. Because, whoa. <laughs> the front lines of World War One sound like the most terrifying place one could possibly imagine. Yes. I mean, it's so funny. I've studied... I've studied a bunch of wars, obviously, studying history, and including World War II. And there's something about World War I and this trench warfare that mm -hmm. scares me more than anything. It, it hits something yeah. inside me. I don't know if you feel similarly or not, but it really, it, it, it frightens me to my core. You're in an, in an environment that you cannot escape no. peril to there's your health. There's nowhere trench to foot. go. There's nowhere You're to gonna go. You're going to die it's in bleak. any direction. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. You know, you're, you're the best place for you to be is at the bottom of the trench where all the disease is, you know, you go above the trench, yeah. you get your head best off. You in run quotation away. marks. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so bleak yeah. and it's so depressing and scary. Terrifying. Yeah. You know, and like we were saying, like with the Civil War and like the 19th century, you're like one foot out, one foot in modernity, one foot yeah. and one foot in antiquity. You're more still in modernity now, you know, but um, it's the maximalism of endangerment to one's bodily yeah. harm. Like warfare today is like militarized, mechanized drones. It's more, yeah. Like we've it's more calculated. We figured out ways to. 
make better it abstract. Take, <laughs> yeah, take away the danger to the individual. Yeah. You know, you're in full. You're you're fully exposed to all of the danger. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll go into that a little bit. But I think for for anybody who uh, whoever wants to kind of get a pop culture version of this. Most historians agree that the two most recent World War One films, 1917, and this um, this recent version of All Quiet on the Western Front, are terrifyingly accurate in terms of what it was like to be there. Um, I've only watched clips and bits of All Quiet on the Western Front, and I like I wanted to throw up. It was so upsetting. But 1917 is a hard watch too. 1917 is really visceral, yeah. amazing camera work. Incredible. Movie. Um, the uh, the Peter Jackson movie, They Shall Not Grow oh, Old. Oh yeah, you know I've never seen which that is one. With the found with the found footage from like the uh, Anglosphere. I think it's like yeah. Australians. And that is an easier watch because you're watching the men eating yeah. and like they're they're looking at a camera and they're laughing and it's so it's so endearing, but you also see a lot of the fatigue and the pain and the reality yeah. of the grossness of this of terrible, war. terrible war. Um, yeah, yeah. Nineteen seventeen was a gut punch. I mean, Ooh. my God, some of those shots are just it's that steady can long Ooh, shot. I'm getting chills remembering. <laughs> it's powerful. It it's so powerful. Ooh, so it is a brutal bloody and many times straight up barbaric war led by heartless men who are unscrupulous when it comes to the types of weapons they are using. They don't care about the amount of soldiers or civilians killed, even if it's their own people that they sacrifice. It's win at any and all cost. And the cost is insanely high. Whatever shred mm -hmm. of a code of conduct that had once existed on the European battlefield is just blown to pieces in World War One by mortar. And it's just, it's horrible. I have some other numbers here that I found really upsetting <laughs> that I hadn't seen before that I was watching. I was watching a documentary from, um, do you know the series Timeline? It's really good. They have- Oh yeah, the archeology oh So they have like a whole history portion of timeline as well and and it's hosted by an actual like military historian so he's really good and they were doing these the whole series is called world war one by the numbers and so it's very number heavy um but some of the stats that they gave was uh at certain points in the war soldiers were dying at an average of six thousand a day one third of the population of men aged between 19 and 22 would be dead by the end of the war. And 10 to 15% of all soldiers who fought in the First World War died. Those numbers, like I'm getting tears in my eyes because I can't stand how- It's ugh. all the men. It's all the young men. They shall not they grow shall old. They shall not grow old. You know, no. It's so, it's so yeah. sad. And you think about the women who are waiting for them or who the, to whom they will come back yeah. to. And if you're shell-shocked, you're traumatized, you're-, you're Yeah, living isn't always the best thing you're either. You're lucky. <laughs> you know? uh, oh, yeah. so yeah in terms of the actual fighting of world war one it's it's most famous i think for two main things one is it's the debut of what we call modern or mechanized warfare and like i already mentioned the most horrific version of trench warfare and a war of attrition that you could imagine meaning we're all just kind of stuck fighting endlessly without ever gaining much on either side in terms of land movements, areas conquered, things like that. It's just not that kind of war, which again is what makes these days stretch on into years of the same thing right. day in and day right. out for these poor fucking soldiers. Yeah, so... <laughs> This amazing weaponry is like, holy shit, look at all this stuff we got. Look at all these cool toys. But here's the problem. We don't know how to fight in this kind of war. So we're going to hide for a while. <laughs> That's literally what happens. And a while is like three years, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. Because all they're going to do is I'm going to play defense here because offense is way too scary to like actually go out into what they would call no man's land, the space between the two forces. Because you're, yeah. you're a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. The ability to get away, to even try to infiltrate the other side, usually it's surrounded by barbed wire. So even if, let's say, you did get that far, you either can try to climb through the barbed wire, which you're going to get caught and machine gunned, or maybe you're going to try to fire through it. 
and you're still going to get caught. So it's just like, it's horrible. It's like impossible. So yeah, yeah I'm going to hide and shoot and throw. I'm mostly just going to throw shit out of my hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like a great defense, but it makes a war go on for mm -hmm. fucking ever. And that's why the World War One is so bleak and awful and and why it like sits sits with me different than a lot of other wars for that reason mm. um for most of the war the what the western front was impenetrable it's over 470 miles long which is nuts <laughs> and at parts there were Crazy. ways you could get in but like by the time things had really been set up you're, you're, yeah there's no way in there's no way out you're just gonna die if you try. And the distance, this was a number that I hadn't actually looked up before. I'd never really considered like, how far apart were they anyway? At certain points on the Western Front, they the most apart they would possibly be is like 300 yards in Gallipoli. Not, in Gallipoli, it was 15. <laughs> 15. 15? That's Scary. like- So those are, the guys, those are the guys who were like having Christmas together. Like they're like, oh, hey yeah, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> After shooting each other for 364 <laughs> days on Christmas, they're like, hey, yards, Mr. you can Merry see Christmas. like someone's eyes. You can yeah. see their freckles. Yeah, yeah that's you're a person like, you're you're attacking. That's not just like some yeah. kind of entity, right? That's very different. Yeah. And like in terms of actual land gains, the most that's ever gained is by the Germans at about they gain about 60 miles, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And they mm. lose it all. To the to the allied forces so right. it's it's nuts it's so unproductive it's a three-year stalemate with endless death it's not like they're both just sitting in the holes and hanging out they're trying to kill each other non-stop yeah and then who who always shows up luke illness <laughs> the trenches themselves are not really that safe they're filled with filth human filth they're yeah. filled with disease the words trench foot should send shivers down the spine of any Terrifies human being me. horrible horrible thing that i can't even a little bit think about i've never tried to look up photos of it because i just don't want to see <laughs> no we don't need to we don't need to know that visually no we can, the imagination doesn't i think the words lend themselves perfectly to what it is but it's yeah. why you need dry socks people wear dry socks <laughs> It's true. It's true. It's true. I just rewatched Glory recently, and the oh. whole, the, you know, and all the black soldiers need footwear, and Denzel takes off his shoe, and it's like it's so yep. rough. It's, it's so, so bad. rough. There's so a lot. Oh. I'm very sensitive to the foot thing. No, not good. The, the yeah, the, <laughs> the war foot thing is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're dealing with that. There's an endless parade of fucking rats and fleas and like there's some soldiers who talked about like they were more scared of the rats almost than anything else because they the numbers were so large chomping on your toes and they'd be yeah nipping at you they'd be taking your food which there isn't mm -hmm. that much of anyway and then they'd always be eating your fucking friend who just died mm -hmm. so yeah of course there's also bodies in the trenches and, right. and where do you go when half your battalion gets shot up in the trench? You're just like thrown yeah. behind you, right? Like, mm. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that the noise of artillery and the grenades, I mean, it you're losing your hearing and you can't think or really function, which is why there's this common thing of what they would call shell shock, where right. soldiers, they would need to do something and they literally couldn't. They're paralyzed with their senses are just on overdrive they're terrified and and yet because again men are crazy they would still shoot people for cowardice for that mm -hmm. even though they were mm -hmm. simply having a very normal acceptable post-traumatic response yeah, physiological yeah. reaction to horrible stress yeah there's some there's some footage of of world war one vets with with shell shock ptsd mm. you know exhibiting cases and it's like these guys are getting no treatment you know no, what I mean? And they're no. just like so jittery and excitable. And like, you know, well, there's like there's like a guy, he's like he's sitting and then he gets startled and he you see him oh. go through the triggering, you know, and it's just you just you feel so badly for them because you know how ill-equipped the professionals are at the time beyond to, to deal with this situation. No, that's that we do that we that's very very much aware in our society today of, of PTSD. You know, it's a huge yeah. societal 
which, you know, it leads to a lot of broken homes. It leads to excessive drinking and drug mm -hmm. use. And I mean, just homelessness. It's, it's when you don't take care of your vets after they've taken care of you, it's, it's disgusting and disgraceful. And World War I did not take care of their people, not even a little bit. So no. <sighs> super happy, fun stuff. Let's talk about weapons. <laughs> <laughs> So these weapons are killing people en masse. They are wounding them horribly. We're talking uh, bullet wounds, shrapnel wounds, chemical burns, anything and everything you can imagine. I do not have time to talk about every single weapon that was in this war. There are fucking nerd podcasts that I'm sure you could listen to where one episode is devoted to one gun. <laughs> yeah, I don't love the gun porn. I did listen to some of, I couldn't make it through the whole thing, but Dan Carlin did uh, a World War One series where it was so weapon heavy. I was like, I'm out. I can't. I can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying. And Jay liked it, but not. Of not course, me. well, military history is so male driven. It is so. And yes. I, you know, when I would call this like football. This idea of like, you know, this general was here, and they took the field, and they moved here, and like, you know, I've walked on so many battlefields, and I, I feel them emotionally because of what happened there, but I cannot really understand the movements of troops and like the strategy, the doubts, yeah. and like all oh, the shit. I'm like, this is all. So abstract to it me. It is like football. That's a really good comparison Absolutely. in that way. Like what is they're here, we're here. Oh my god, get the gray guys. Like it's it, to me, it trivializes. Yeah. I'm like, what are they feeling? What is happening to them? Like, you know, and that's yeah. it's, it's there. But again, yeah. 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 Same so, with the gun. It's it's trivializing what the guns were doing to like focus so much on like how big it was and how many bullets it yeah. had. So I'm I'm just going to name sort of these things that are seen for the first time because they have such a terrifying impact on the war. Um, and they, like I said, this is mechanized warfare. This is modern warfare as we know it. So premiering for the first time, we have uh, howitzers. This is the first time barbed wire is used for war. It was a right. relatively new invention at the time. Uh, like it had only been around for decades at that point. Uh, we see machine guns. Gatling guns were seen in the Civil War. Uh, and of course, Mr. Gatling was like, I did this for peaceful purposes. What are you doing? <laughs> that is the, I'm so tired of those guys. That is the great fallacy of the 19th oh, century. Or not a fallacy, known. but it's a great myth. Sam Colt called his gun the peacemaker. And that was that was how you sell it. I That's can. literally how you sell it. And then you the know. the poor Jewish scientist who invented basically invented chemical warfare says the same thing. It's like, oh, I didn't think it would be used like that <laughs> to kill my entire race. Yes, I had become deaf. Yeah. So, ugh. so yes. Speaking of which, chemical warfare comes on the scene for the first time in several forms. The most terrifying and deadly of which, Luke, you've mentioned a few times, is mustard gas. And this chemical warfare, this gas warfare, is so so terrifying this is one of the things about like if i have a nightmare of world war one i'm sitting in a trench and then all of a sudden you see like this weird smoke and it's like oh that's bizarre and all of a sudden you're just like coughing and then you're choking and then you're clawing at your throat because you're trying to breathe they would often find people who had died from mustard gas poisoning with like clutching their throats mm. Same thing with um, Zyklon B, I believe. Um, mm. Yeah, you're burn. It's burning you. It's it's hurting you severely. If you were lucky, maybe you'd just get actual burns mm -hmm. um, and survive it. The other thing with mustard gas is it's stuck around. It's not like it just fucking dissipated into the air right after. Right. It's 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 horrible. It's absolutely horrible what that starts. And we have, oh my God, it just goes on, you guys. We have trench mortars, we have tanks, we have U-boats, aka mm -hmm. submarines for the first time. We have planes for the first time being used first as surveillance and then to do aerial attacks. So of course, then we create anti-aircraft guns. Uh, one of my personal favorites, the Germans bring the flamethrower to the party. <laughs> so scary. I can't with that. They show that in um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Like they're mm. just hosing down a front lawn. It's so yeah. <laughs> disturbing. It is. It is. Yeah. So, th and this is, I'm like glossing over this. And that's just a tiny fraction 
of yeah well you've got the decades we've been talking about the industrial revolution for weeks yeah you've got the culmination of the best kinds of industrialization mm -hmm. interchangeable parts mass production assembly line oh yeah it, it just it, we're still rolling through that revolution it just gets worse and worse in terms of the kinds of weapons we can produce we're constantly perfecting yeah these implements of death and those things that had been positive for the Industrial Revolution, like railroads and new modes of communication and transportation, also make it easier to get these weapons to the war front. So it's like, okay, yeah, just get this thing along the rails, get it in, get it along however you can. Whereas, like, you couldn't bring in new weapons this quickly. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a thing. The game is changing every day in World War One, where they, yeah, they're constantly just trying to keep up with each other, which is why at a certain point, humanity just goes out the window. Mm -hmm. And it, it just becomes this thing of like, well, they're trying to kill us with this shit, so we gotta double down and now try to kill them with that shit. And it just goes so fucking out of control. Yeah. So yeah, you have these poor men are being exposed to all the things and they're suffering from these horrible injuries. Like I mentioned, you have bullet wounds, shrapnel wounds, chemical burns, just burns from exposure to fire. And because of this trench warfare specifically and the fragmentation from all these shell blasts, the amount of head and facial injuries in World War I is insanely high. And that is where our next woman of World War I comes in. So throughout the war, people are beginning to see uh, soldiers coming back because they've, they've been far too injured to return to service. They're very disfigured. They're literally wearing the war on their face. They are missing eyes, noses, half their faces, most of their faces. Their faces are basically caved in. Their jaws are gone. It's, it's awful. So now they don't only have to deal with the emotional and physical injuries of war, but now they're facing this isolation. They feel like pariahs, right. these a heroes. Lifetime of, a lifetime of being a, just a disfigured other. Yeah. And there, there was a paper at the time said veterans are almost condemned to isolation unless surgery can repair the damage. But of course, the issue is surgery is not that great at the no, time. There's no, no plastic surgery. The surgeon could sew you up and get the wounds closed, but then you just have horrible scars on your face. It's not like you look better, really. No. You just don't have maybe gaping open wounds. We're a long ways off from any kind of real facial surgeries. And frankly, even today, like facial transplants still aren't that good. Terrifying. Yeah, they're not that good. Oh God, remember the chimpanzee lady? Yeah. I mean, like Jesus Christ. You do what you can, but still, it's always there's always no, going to be scarring. So, you know, it's it's a terrible, terrible life. And in this Smithsonian Magazine article, I read this super sad thing that apparently in this town in England called Sidcup, it was a there was a hospital for World War One soldiers there, and there were nearby benches that were painted blue, and that was a code that warned people in the town that any man who was sitting on that bench would be distressful to view. So don't go near the blue benches, or you're going to get upset. Ew, so literally, hot. we're telling you to leave these poor men by themselves because it's because it's gross. It's terrible, right? It's gross. Ugh. So while some recoiled, others saw people who desperately needed some help. And one incredible woman named Anna Coleman Ladd would step up and help them in the only way she knew how. Anna Coleman Ladd was an American and an artist. She was primarily a sculptress. <laughs> During the war in late 1917, her husband, Dr. Maynard Ladd, was appointed to take care of the Children's Bureau of the American Red Cross in France. Anna stayed home, but she knew she wanted to find some kind of purpose during the war, and she caught wind of this guy named Francis Derwent Wood in London. He was also an artist, and he had encountered soldiers like the ones I was talking about who had these severe facial disfigurements, uh, and they were just, 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 just grief-stricken about the way that they looked and didn't want to go back to their families or had already kind of been rejected by their families because of the way that they looked. So... As an answer to this, he sculpts masks as a type of prosthetic mm. created to mimic the previous facial features of the soldiers as best as possible. Now, prosthetics in general aren't 
new at this time. They've been around for centuries. We all know mm -hmm. about like peg legs and glass eyes and stuff like that. But like I said, this, this isn't really a thing. Oh, by the way, Luke knows this, but I am finally being an adult and watching the Nick. <laughs> so in that show, there is a character who has syphilis yes. and she wears a tin nose because her oh nose God, has yes. fallen up. Do you remember mm -hmm. when they, when we first meet Abby, she's wearing that and literally, it's clearly a metal nose. It's clearly not a skin-colored nose. No, it's not meant to look like your nose at all. But it's, you know, what it's doing is it's protecting the just the giant hole the in your face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and also, like, making you feel, I guess, slightly more comfortable. And it was pretty common at the time that that was a, quote-unquote, treatment for someone yeah. who had syphilis. It's so not really designed to look like a, a real nose. Um, but again, there's no such thing as full or partial face prosthesis of a high caliber prior to Wood's work. Mm -hmm. So back to Lad. She finds out about him and contacts him and they begin discussing his methods and everything else. She wants to learn the technique. She learns from him. And since he's operating out of London, she wants to spread the work elsewhere and she ends up getting permission to go to France. And she did have to get permission because apparently husbands and wives were not allowed to be in the same war zones. I had I had never heard of this before. That makes sense, I guess. I guess I could see why. Um, so she goes to Paris, and she set, gets set up with the American Red Cross that, get this, had so many thousands of soldiers with face wounds that they had set up something called Masks for Facial Disfigurement Department. It was its own department. Big demand. Sadly. So this is where she has founded the studio for portrait masks to treat soldiers with facial disfigurements. You and your masks. Back to the masks, y'all. <laughs> and here's a description of the method. It's going to sound a little familiar. This is from an article from the History Channel magazine by Jack L. High. Using photographs of the soldiers that had been taken before the injury or working from verbal descriptions if no photo was available, she sculpted a close duplication of the man's undamaged features on a plaster cast. From that, she produced a mask of gutta percha, a natural latex collected from evergreen trees. Hanging this mask in a copper bath infused with electric current resulted in the creation of a thin, light, metallic mask that she painted with an enamel concoction of her own invention to match the soldier's skin tone. Mm. If the wounded man was blind, the mask would be equipped with artificial eyes. Years later, Ladd told a reporter, eyelashes, eyebrows, even mustaches were affixed in the masks. They were light and durable. The masks were meant to last a lifetime. And they were generally affixed via glasses, like that's how you would put the mask on. But right. if the soldier said, I, I never wore glasses. I don't, I don't, that's not me. That's not what I look like. They could find a way to, to tie it on your face with string or something like that. Right. And she put so much energy and effort into these. It could take about a month to do just one. And yeah. And I think because of her work, uh, it's said that her masks were far superior to Woods. Like she was, she knew a what was artist. up. Yeah. 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 Um, she was especially known for her ability to really capture the skin tone. She worked very hard at that, having the individual sit with her, painting the mask on like next to the person's face the entire time to get yeah. all the hues just right. It's amazing. It's really incredible. And unfortunately, because of how long it could take, uh, by the end of 1919, you know, the war's over and she's pretty much going to be leaving France. She'd only made 185 masks. Mm. And it's estimated that we're tw there were 20,000 facial casualties in World War One. So really just a drop in the bucket. It is a drop in the bucket. But what I'll say is she is a great example of that. I think it's a Dr. Seuss quote of to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. Because she was interviewed about the many letters that she received from soldiers. She said in an interview, the letters of gratitude from the soldiers and their families hurt. They were mm -hmm. so grateful. One had written, thanks to you, I will have a home. Another, the woman I love no longer finds me repulsive as mm. she had the right to do, which is, oh. <laughs> mm. and she's, you know, she's kind of lost a bit in history now, but her services were so valued that she earned honors. She learned the Légion d'Honneur Croix de Chevalier and the Serbian Order of Saint Sava. 
which I assume are very big deals. Very prestigious. <laughs> right? Super. And she also left behind this incredible legacy in the world of what we now know as anaplastology, which is the art, craft, and science of restoring absent or malformed anatomy through artificial means. She kind of started plastic surgery with this guy and mm -hmm. yeah, and creating uh, prosthetics for wow. the face specifically. Yeah, it's really incredible. So it's hard to conclude this story because World War One was fucking abysmal. <laughs> <laughs> but we can be grateful for these good, kind players in the story, in particular, these incredible women like Anna. She's wonderful. And despite having limited rights, limited agency, they still chose to stand up for their countries and help in whatever way they could. I found this great quote from the time and uh, some observer had said about specifically American women, women do anything they're given to do. Their hours are long, their task is hard. That for them, there is only a small hope of medals and citations and glittering homecoming parades. Oof. And that's the truth. There's nothing in it for them other than it was the right thing to do. Right, no, no, no satisfaction, no gratitude, no recognition. Yeah, and of course the boys come home and that's it for their jobs and everything else. Any kind of forward momentum they had made feeling like real productive members of society is taken away. However, they had kind of made their point and this absolutely helps propel forward the suffragist movement and soon over the next you know decade or so, we begin to see women's rights pop up finally <laughs> all throughout yeah. Europe. Advancing women's position. Yeah, so World War I, it has these really horrendous outcomes in terms of modern warfare, obviously the rise of fascism, uh, communism, dictatorships, but it also brings about women's rights. And I think also an awareness of sort of slowing our role with weapons, they don't fully get that right till after World War II, <laughs> but at least it's the start of the conversation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also the beginning of the end of imperialism. It's starting to really slow down that shit, thank God. But mm -hmm. so yeah, lots of lots of wins and losses in World War I, needless to say. But uh, yeah, I can't help but be wowed by these women and everything that they did. Thank you for bringing light to their story and yeah. allowing other people to learn, myself included, about these important legacies to consider. I mean, World War One is such a treasure trove of history that is so is. often underexplored. And I think you and I have a passion in this podcast about <laughs> bringing to light those that, you know, the, the curtains of time have obscured. Yeah. Um, and I know the World War One centennial was just a few years ago. It was. Um, and it was, again, you know, a, a murmur, a, an echo in history. It wasn't a huge deal because, as you can imagine, with a forgotten war, its commemoration is kind of muted. Mm -hmm. um, but I know there's so much in history. And again, cinematically, World War One does have a, an important position, you know, lit in, the, in literature and in our culture and commemoratively in the UK and parts like that. Yeah. So is there any sort of landscape of commemoration or oh, sites we can babe, explore? Is there ever? My God. So um, starting with, uh, unfortunately, due to the constant where uh, she was wrong about the durability of the masks, they seemed to only last a couple of years before falling apart. And as a mm. result, none of those masks still exist today. That's a shame. Which is a real shame. And it could be that, yeah, they fell apart or people wanted to be buried with them. Be like, that's my I face was curious now. About that, yeah. yeah, that's my face now. Don't take my face. <laughs> but there are lots of really incredible photos of many of the masks and her working on the men while they're wearing the masks or modeling the masks. We can post a bunch of those to Instagram, but I believe original copies of those exist in archives of Smithsonian, uh, Library of Congress, other, other institutions like that. In pop culture, if you wanna see what one looked like, uh, there's the best possible you know, example would be Boardwalk Empire. The right. character, yes, Richard Harrow, uh, he, for those who maybe don't know the show, he's a sharpshooter in World War One, and he's badly disfigured. He loses his eye, he, uses his up, he loses his upper jaw, most of his cheekbone all on the left side of his face. And he also, uh, I think his throat is damaged, so he like speaks 
kind of muffled and low. Yeah. Um, and it makes him a pretty scary character, but the mask is so of the time. He absolutely, if he could have gotten to one of these shops, would have been able to acquire one of those masks. So yeah. it's designed in her particular style, which is pretty cool to see. They did their research. Absolutely. <laughs> um, beyond that, I mean, God, so many museum treatments. National World War One Museum and Memorial exists uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And they actually are about to have an exhibit and this is so exciting. If anybody can go, please take pictures. Please let me know. Um, an exhibit called Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics. So they're probably going to have all these photos on display and yeah. way more stuff. That's opening in June. So please, somebody go to that if you can. There's, of course, the Imperial War Museum in the UK. There's the National Army Museum in London. Uh, I think that's in Chelsea. You can visit many of the battle sites. There are some remains of trenches, mines as well in France, uh, specifically in, I think, Verdun has, has some trenches there that you can still see, mm. which we know that some of the worst fighting occurred there. Then there's battle remains in Antwerp, on the Belgian coast, in Ypres, in Flanders. I mean, in on the Somme, there's also battle remains. A lot of these places still have, still occasionally come across shells. Mm -hmm. And they have to be dealt with yeah, appropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Isn't that scary? I hate it. <laughs> so yeah, it's the history continues to be littered across Europe. But as far as I could tell, that National World War One Museum here in the States is the only place that has a continuous history dedicated to this topic. But I've been to other little World War One museums and other places. I went to one in Quebec that had a great treatment of World War One. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess Canadians would have been in World War One. <laughs> it's just there like, there's such a small player in like everything. <laughs> you kind of don't think about them. But same thing. I mean, you talked about Australia. You're like, oh, yeah. Australia would have been involved, wouldn't they? But you yeah, know, they're not the like, empire. yeah, they're not yeah. mentioned as like an allied power or anything. So it's, right. yeah, it's right. always look around is, is a good piece of advice. I would say when you're in a new country, when you're in a new place, because the odds are they probably do something regarding the two world wars. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think our commemorative landscapes bear that out. You know, yeah. just because we say a war is forgotten does not mean that they didn't forget it in 1925 and build some obelisk or some kind of monument. Yeah. Um, you know who really didn't forget it? Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, to that point, the World War One Memorial in Washington, D.C. is, is abysmal. It's oh, yes. Yes, so that is there. Lame. It's um, it's underwhelming. <laughs> it's off the mall. It's literally just you you breeze by it on like a highway. It's literally just like a circle of it's a, a colonnade, yeah. Versus like the Vietnam Memorial, which is so upsetting because it has all yes. names and like the Korean War, like the rice patty thing is so moving. Like it really yeah. is such a like a. <laughs> no, you're right. It's like the the memorial. I didn't even like, mention it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> going from being like an, an arch or something like you know a pretty monument to like let's actually get a texture of the human you know side of this. Yeah, I was reminded of the Civil War, the National Civil War Museum of Medicine in Frederick, Maryland. Mm. They also have a pretty extensive facial reconstruction section. Oh, I mean, cool. it's a little more crude in this American Civil War. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they had prosthetics and they had early facial um, surgeries. And you yeah. see these really chilling before and after photos um, of these of these vets. Really bleak. Um, yeah. You know, like you, you know. say, you can survive, but is it what kind of life is there? Is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. So I hope, if nothing else, uh, this has inspired some of you to maybe... I don't know, look into World War One a little bit more, learn a little bit more about some of the amazing heroes and heroines of the day, because they deserve recognition. We should not, this should never be a forgotten war in the United States. Not Absolutely. At all. Well said. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review the Morbid Museum Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow us on TikTok, on Instagram and send us an email at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. And you can join us as a more buddy on our Patreon content. So check us out next time for more morbid content inside the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye bye. Bye.